You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Even after these preparations, multiple problems abounded. Creating the Malden Group allowed me to evade the impossibly doomed task of trying to pose as a Turkmen official and instead impersonate a Western businessman. It was a stretch, but with enough preparation I might be plausible in that role. Yet I'd never even been anywhere near Turkmenistan. I knew nothing of local customs. I had no knowledge beyond what was available through an Internet search of Ashgabat, the capital. Kenneth Case would ostensibly have traveled at least a few times to that country, where the Malden Group allegedly had huge investments at stake and surely be minimally familiar with its capital city. Despite intensive coaching from a Russian-speaking friend, I couldn't even pronounce Bertie Mukhamedov's name. And what would happen if I were asked for my impressions of Turkmenistan? Did Ashgabat have at least a few good restaurants? What was nightlife like? Friendly questions could easily trip me up, and there might be real trouble if any of the lobbyists I met had been to Turkmenistan. That seemed unlikely, but hardly impossible, especially as all the firms I planned to contact had done business in the Caspian. Hence, I further refined Kenneth Case's backstory to make it consistent with his total ignorance of Turkmenistan. The Malden Group was based in London, but Case couldn't be British since I couldn't pull off that accent any better than I could a Turkmen one. So Kenneth Case, I determined, would be an American expatriate living in London. Life was funny, I'd say if asked, and I would be. But I'd more or less stumbled into my current position. I'd grown up in St. Louis, Missouri, and gone off to college in the Big Apple. While studying for a master's degree in political science at the New School for Social Research, I'd completed a semester's worth of courses in Rio de Janeiro. Growing disillusioned with academic work, I'd dropped out of the university and bummed around Brazil. Up to this point, Kenneth Case's background actually mirrored my own. Where we parted ways was that I'd ultimately returned to the States and embarked on a journalism career, whereas Case had remained in Brazil and, blame it on Rio, fallen in love. Yes, my studies had been a bust, but I'd met the lady of my dreams, a foreign graduate student from Lebanon. Her father lived in London and had heavy interest in international energy markets. As I was aimless and without solid job prospects, he'd hired me, with an eye to his daughter's future, to be his general assistant and helper, whereupon I'd moved to London with my future bride. Even though I had no formal financial, business, or economics background, and didn't play much of a direct role in the energy business, I had put my nose to the grindstone and worked myself into the position of indispensable right-hand man. I set up meetings, arranged his schedule and travel, and generally made sure the trains ran on time. This cover story would explain, hopefully, why I knew not only nothing of Turkmenistan, but virtually nothing either, of the energy business, Caspian Basin trade, natural gas transportation, or pipeline networks. My boss, I would further explain, had interest across the globe, among them the Malden Group, of which he was a leading investor. I'd been temporarily assigned to the Malden Group and, because I was originally from the States and knew Washington well, had been asked to set up and attend the initial round of exploratory meetings in the Capitol. Afterward, I would file a report for my boss and other investors, They alone would decide which of the firms to retain. Even this cover story posed a number of obvious shortcomings. I'd been to London half a dozen times during the prior five years, but never for more than a few days. Any vetting of Kenneth Case, or even a screw-up during the inevitable round of chit-chat with the various lobbyists, could quickly reveal that I was not a city resident. I called a few friends in London and asked them for tips on how I might convincingly establish myself as a local, but never felt very comfortable. I have a flat in Chelsea was about the only line I could say with any conviction. The plan seemed less than foolproof, but it would have to do. Ken Silverstein is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author of The Radioactive Boy Scout. His new book is Turkmenistan, How Washington Lobbyists Fought to Flack for a Stalinist Dictatorship. Thank you for joining me, Ken. Thank you. Ken, this is a really fun book. It's very interesting. And... One of the things that you do, you talk about uh, creating a phony defense company. Um, could you, you, you had two plans first, and, and so talk about the first plan, what you were going to do, and who you were going to go after. Well, the first plan uh, is when we were going to create the phony defense contractor. This was the original plan. 
I would set up a firm with an address and a phone number, probably in the Virginia suburbs outside of Washington, D.C., where there are thousands of small defense contractors. And then I would hire a lobbyist and target a member of Congress and try to get an earmark into the defense appropriations bill, an earmark being one of these grants, usually in the range of two, three, four million dollars for my phony firm. We were going to come up with a project of very dubious utility uh, because we wanted to show how corrupt the whole earmarking process was. And so we, we didn't want to propose a, a really great program. We wanted something pretty crummy, but but sh to demonstrate that with the right lobbyist and member of Congress, we could get it. And we, we had this pretty well thought out. I mean, there is a very, very powerful lobbying firm in Washington called PMA. It is one of the top lobbying firms for the defense industry, represents a lot of small contractors for fees of about typically twenty to thirty to forty thousand dollars a month. And they are extremely close with Congressman John Murtha of Pennsylvania, who is uh, shall we say ethically challenged in, in, in a variety of ways. He's been involved in a, a little bit of trouble over the years. Um, never necessarily broke the law, but has um, had a few close calls. And he is one of the very powerful members of the Appropriations Committee. He gets a lot of pork. And so we thought, you create the phony firm, you get the right lobbyist, you get the right member of Congress, and we'll get a $4 million earmark for our, for our company. We talked about exactly what the project should be. And um, I actually interviewed various defense lobbyists about this. And I said, well, you know, give me, give me some ideas here. What sort of money should, what, what in terms of asking for money, what would the project be? Give me a good idea where they might give me a few million dollars. And this lobbyist actually said to me, um, uh, it doesn't matter really what the project is. You know, if you want to outfit a flock of pigeons with cell phones, you can get a few million dollars for that. You just need the right lobbyist and the right member of Congress. I think he was being facetious, <laughs> but he suggested that, uh, you know, really the, the critical thing was just fi finding the right tag team with the right lobbyist and the right member of Congress, and we would get money. And we backed out of that plan for a couple of reasons. One, because it really did raise some pretty serious ethical concerns. We never intended to actually take possession of the million dollars or $2 million earmark if we got one. But we would insert it into the defense bill, and then we'd publish the story and you know show how unbelievably corrupt the process was. But it still seemed pushing it. But uh, I have to say, uh, probably an even bigger concern, or at least an equal concern, was that we were going to have to shell out $20,000 a month to hire a lobbyist to get the earmark. And this would probably, you know, easily cost us over $100,000 for the lobbyist alone. If you put a lobbyist in retainer for six months, we'd have to create an office with at least some skeletal, um, I mean, even if it was hiring a uh, an agency to answer phone calls for us. I mean, the expenses were going to get really, really high. It didn't seem practical, which is when we decided to go for plan B. Now, one of the things I liked was that you had talked about uh, creating what you called advanced communications research or uh, astonishing congressional ripoff. I think that was the other <laughs> that was that's what the acronym uh, the ACR acronym could have stood for. That was going to be our our phony defense firm. And, and one of the things you talk about is uh, Randy Cunningham. He actually ha had a menu for earmarks for how much, what he would do for how much. It was like a, a, a dinner menu. Uh, yeah, it, w it really it was called a bribe mem menu by the prosecutors in, in the Duke Cunningham case. I mean, here's a guy, member of Congress, who now is a, a federal prisoner, who, you know, actually wrote down, you know, he was dumb enough because it's very hard to get caught doing this sorts of things. I mean, Cunningham, he was also, he really pushed... The, the boundaries here, but it's, you know, it's hard to get caught, but if you actually are dumb enough to write down on a napkin that if I get to, and you know, and give this to a businessman showing if I get this amount of money in payments from you, bribes, then you will receive the, a corresponding amount in federal contracts. I mean, this is probably, you know, any good lawyer would advise you never put your bribe menu down on paper. So, but Cunningham did it, and hence he's in jail. I mean, he was one of the many scandals of, that w had emerged at the time that I was planning this story for Harper's um, that sort of uh, inspired me to, to try to do this and to, you know, expose the continued access and influence of lobbyists despite these scandals that had taken place. 
that's what one of the things I found most interesting was that this what you did took place after all the stuff had come out and we everybody <clears throat> knew it and these guys still went the fish still went for the bait even though the hooks had already been revealed. Well, what was really incredible to me was as I, as we were working on the final you know, plan B, which was let's approach some Washington lobbyists. I set up a phony firm that allegedly had a stake in the natural gas fields of Turkmenistan, which is one of the world's two remaining Stalinist dictatorships, along with North Korea. So I set up this firm, supposed to be based in London, and then I go in and meet with Washington lobbyists and ask them if they'll, you know, if they'll work for me. I mean, what will you do to make Turkmenistan look good? We have a stake over there. The government will be grateful if we promote the regime here in the United States. How will you promote it? How will you make us look good with the public and policymakers? Even as I was having these conversations with lobbyists, you know, first by phone and email, and then in several cases, I had in-person meetings with top Washington lobbying firms. In the midst of this, the Wall Street Journal did this very big front page story about sleazy Eastern European companies and interests who had hired up Washington lobbyists. I thought, my God, you know, these the lobbyists who I'm dealing with um, are going to get really nervous because here's a big newspaper doing a major story about how inappropriate it is for Washington lobbyists to be, you know, in bed with very, very sleazy Eastern European clients. And I'm proposing the very same thing. Surely they'll back off. But they didn't. You know, they they viewed me as a... Uh, big, fat business opportunity worth millions of dollars, and they never did any sort of proper due diligence, which is why, in the end, they got busted. Well, let's talk a little bit about the history of lobbying and foreign lobbying. Um, you talked about Jefferson Waterman International and Burma in your book. They, they, were a, a, they did a great job representing a, a hideously repressive regime, didn't they? Yeah, this was one of the many... Um, Many the stories I tell, and in, 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 in some of these would be almost comical if they weren't so preposterous, but Jefferson Waterman went out and represented the Burmese government, which had been decertified under U.S. law because it was allegedly in bed with heroin traffickers. This was a big strike against it. And Jefferson Waterman actually took a group of journalists over there to demonstrate that the government had cleaned up its act, and, and the Burmese government... Um, took them around and they showed them apparently a huge pile of uh, 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 poppies or something. Uh, and they were, you know, saying, look, you know, this is we're, we're, we're sh cutting down the poppies and we're really controlling the heroin trade. But then journalists examined it and they'd already extracted the, you know, what was needed to, for, to produce opium and, and then heroin from, from the poppies. So, you know, journalists came back and reported, well, you know, it was great to see the poppies, but where was the opium? Um, they also put out this um, web publication that was like I don't know if any if if you or some of your listeners ever remember seeing North Korean Life, which was this you know I, I used to see it years ago when I worked at a magazine. Uh, you know, every newsroom in America got North Korea Life, this glossy publication out of North Korea where it showed happy children and happy factory workers and the illustrious president and everything else. Well, Jefferson Waterman put together something very similar to this on behalf of the Burmese government. It was an Internet publication. It was just absolutely embarrassing. I mean, it talked about, you know, the government. You would have thought that there was no freer, more democratic, more wonderful government in the world than the Burmese government. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there was always been a level of shamelessness. I'd also point out here that um, McCain had to... Uh, fire uh, one of his advisors, a guy, I think he was a regional campaign manager, Doug Goodyear, who, uh, because his firm had, was revealed to have uh, done some work for Burma. So, you know, we, it's not as if, um, uh, if you look through the, through the records, you will find a lot of very, very dubious governments and some truly rotten ones who have no, no trouble at all if they wave enough money around hiring a Washington lobbyist. I just set up a situation in my book that, that I thought, really, this is completely beyond the PL. This is worse than anything current. Surely they'll turn me down. I mean, but of course, and happily, I was proven wrong. Well, another one you talk about, and I love this, the International Freedom Foundation, which, of course, we all know was for freedom internationally, <laughs> uh, founded by Jack Abramoff, and they produced a movie. Yeah, the International Freedom Foundation was set up in the 1980s, and this was at a time Abramoff was not well known back then. This was one of his early projects. Um, he had 
I think, recently been head of the uh, Young Republicans or College Republicans. And then he had this International Freedom Foundation project, which had offices in London and Pretoria and South Africa. This was during the apartheid regime when you had, you know, of course, <clears throat> institutionalized racial discrimination in South Africa. That was the very basis for the government. And, uh, and, and, and the IFF also had offices in Washington. And it was allegedly, you know, just an anti-communist organization. And they were promoting the so-called freedom fighters in Angola, those freedom fighters being led by a psychopathic killer named Jonas Savimbi, who was later killed, but never mind that. And, you know, they never actually said we're pro-South Africa, but they, they criticized Mandela. They did all sorts of work that was very supportive of the South African government. And it turned out that the whole thing was a front organization that had been funded by the South African government. It was just, it was total setup. I talked to people who were very familiar with the operation who said Abramoff knew exactly what he was doing. There were, you know, it was, it, it had all sorts of cutout fundings and, and, and front groups and all sorts of murky back channels. And curiously enough, this looks to have been the future lobbying model for none other than Jack Abramoff because he used the same sort of double dealing and cutouts when he um, was bilking the Indian tribes that he later represented out of millions and millions of dollars. Now, Let's talk a little bit about your selection of Turkmenistan as a as a place to represent. You you actually, and this kind of amazed me. You actually uh, thought about uh, the Barat movie <laughs> and, and Sasha Cohen and what he had done as a possible approach. You were weighing comedic versus serious approaches, weren't you? We did. I mean, I have to say we never seriously weighed the comedic approach and the the Borat approach, which I I just thought would be hilarious. We even sort of. Uh, in discussing this with my editors, you know, kicked around the idea of having some ridiculous sidekick for those of your listeners who've seen that movie, and I presume many have. Um, we, you know, we had the idea of some absolute sort of communist-era-looking hack who would wear a hideous brown suit and be my sidekick for this thing. But, you know, we were going to get busted immediately. That was never going to work. And the point was to expose the the power of lobbyists, the continued power of lobbyists, their ability to shape and influence public and political opinion. And so, you know, it would have been fun. I would have enjoyed it immensely, but we would have been caught so quickly that we wouldn't have been able to actually make a journalistic point. And so we um, decided to go for the, the straight approach, um, which is how we quickly got to Turkmenistan. You you looked at Chad first, and um, you also looked at, at uh uh, I believe, Kazakhstan. Could you talk about what made uh, Turkmenistan the perfect place to, to represent? Well, we, yeah, we looked around. We wanted to get a real, you know, for lack of a uh, scientific term, a real rattle regime. So, you know, we were looking at the bottom of the barrel, the very, very worst regimes in the world. North Korea wasn't going to work. That was over the top. I mean, so we had to eliminate North Korea, which I also thought would have been quite fun. But, you know, that's flat out illegal. You cannot, there is a it is illegal for there to be any sort of commercial transactions with North Korea. So no lobbyist would accept that simply because, you know, if you turn up on Capitol Hill representing the government of Pyongyang, you're like, okay, go directly to jail. You know, that's just a flat-out violation. Well, there's no money in it, so well, end of story. <laughs> well, there could have been if we created some bogus firm that had— I mean, we could have, you know, claimed to represent <laughs> a firm that was looking to break into the North Korean market. It would have been a stretch. It was a very— <laughs> unlikely avenue, let's say that. So then we started looking at fallback um, countries. Chad, in many ways, was perfect. Um, it's a really corrupt, authoritarian African regime. Got a lot of oil. Um, uh, ExxonMobil has a project over there. Um, you know, there's there's a war going on. I mean, it, it's just like, okay, you've got to be pretty you got to go sing pretty low to represent the government of Chad. And there were a few other possibilities, but Turkmenistan was the best for a variety of reasons. One, the leader of Turkmenistan, the so-called Great Turkmenbashi, self-named Great Turkmenbashi, who was just completely loopy, had named months of the year after his mother and other relatives, had written a book of political wisdom and I think poetry called the Ruknama which, you know, Turkmen citizens actually had to study in order to get their driver's license. You know, there were golden statues of him all over the country. He was completely cuckoo. He dies in December of 2006 to Stalinist regime. He's replaced by his personal dentist, um, a man who had also served as health minister 
whose claim to fame was destroying the Turkmen healthcare sector by firing thousands of doctors and replacing them with soldiers who had to swear loyalty to the great Turkmenbashi. So you had this lunatic regime, um, which was drowning in energy, um, and they had recently held elections, bogus elections, where the dentist won with 95% of the vote, running against, I think it was five members of his own party because no other party is allowed to operate. Political opposition is actually constitutionally forbidden in Turkmenistan. Um, and so, you know, they had had this bogus election. You had a crazy new leader. You had, you know, this ridiculous, surreal history to Turkmenistan. And so it made sense, though, with the new leader to approach Washington lobbyists and say, you know, and this is exactly what we did in our first emails, which when we contacted the, the lobbying firms, we said, there's been a change of government. You know, it may not be perfect, but they're heading in the right direction. You know, they're reaching out. They want to end their political isolation. And we need a Washington lobbyist to help us, you know, demonstrate to the public and policymakers that change is underway. Change is marching in Turkmenistan. So it was it was just perfect. I mean, everything about it worked. OK, now when you selected your target, the next step was for you to recreate yourself as Ken Case. Tell us about doing transforming yourself into Kenneth Case? Well, you know, I had a number of problems in creating a persona. Obviously, I was not going to be Turkmen. I don't look Turkmen. I can't speak the language. We decided that the Malden Group, uh, my phony firm, which was based in London and named after a British brand of table salt, um, which had this stake in the Turkmen oil fields, we, you know, it, it, we didn't want it to be based in Washington. I mean, that, it'd be too easy to check out a firm in Washington. So we put it in London. We found an address on the Internet, a business office, a, a big uh, office building in a prominent London address. We just picked that and made that up. We bought a uh, London cell phone so I could sit on the third floor of my home and call allegedly from London if anybody had caller ID. And I could give out a London number for people to call me. Um, it, the, I, the lobbyists could contact me over in London if they wanted to reach me. Now, were, were you and your editor, you, you guys just sat there and, and browsed the Internet and found, a, found an address and said, oh, that looks good. My, you actually, that's, that, that was uh, one of the editors up at Harper's who helped me set up the whole thing. He even actually uh, uh, called a friend of his in Hong Kong and had him send me a cheap uh, knockoff Rolex that I could wear to the meeting with the lobbyists. <laughs> so he was invaluable. In helping set it up, but yeah, he you know he was doing some research and he found what looked like a, a, a prestige address in an office building with looked like dozens, if not hundreds, of offices, and it made sense that we could be based out of there. But what you know, we also created a website which was just a home page which had nothing but the address and the phone number um, for the for, for the Malden Group, which was so preposterous was that it was the same phone number that I was using. So allegedly, this firm <laughs> that you know. We talked about private jets, you know, this huge stake, you know, apparently there's a vast stake in the Turkmen gas fields. We had one phone number that was the same phone number as the phone I, you know, my personal phone number. It made no sense at all. Um, so we, we set up the firm. We had picked the country. And then I decided, look, I don't know anything. I mean, I've traveled to London. I've been there, um, but I don't know this city. Um so it's going to be a little bit dicey. I, I certainly, you know, I wasn't going to be a British citizen. I don't have the accent, you know, thought, well, I could walk around with an umbrella and a bowler hat or something like that and do something really ridiculous. But I mean, in the end, it was I had to be an American, you know. So we created this story where I um, not only an American, but an American who knew nothing about the energy business because I knew so little. I knew that if I was asked, I'd, I'd stumble over things. So I had to explain you know, why I was in London and why, despite the fact that I worked for this important energy firm, I didn't know much about the business. So then my persona was created. Kenneth Case, the American expat, you know, residing in London, working for a big investor in the Malden Group, but basically a guy who's just knew how to make the trains run on time. I was just this super efficient right-hand man to this billionaire energy investor. And because I'd originally been from the States, they decided that it would make sense for me to come to Washington and hold the initial round of meetings with the lobbyists. It was all terribly flimsy. And I think, again, if the lobbyists hadn't been blinded by greed, they would have asked themselves a lot more questions. Well, at this point, you've got your, your ID created. Could you talk about the, the firms you selected to contact and, and how you went about that first contact with them? Well, we... we picked four firms. We wanted them to be blue-chip, well-known Washington lobbying firms. We didn't want to approach fly-by-night organizations or 
or little companies that might in some way you excuse them for jumping at any client. We wanted to go after really big firms that had huge revenues, um, and, you know, so that they didn't they didn't have to take the contract. I mean, it wasn't going to, you know, it might have been a fat contract, but they were firms that did quite well. Um, and we wanted them to be well-known firms to show that this is representative of the way Washington works. These are, you know, these are big players. And, and we made it out to be a routine pitch to them in terms of, you know, hey, a foreign client wants representation. So we picked, we picked the Livingston Group, which is headed up by former House Speaker uh, Bob Livingston, who um, he was House Speaker for a very brief period of time, actually. Back in the 90s, he was leading the impeachment drive of Bill Clinton. Uh, he was personally appalled by Bill Clinton's transgressions in his affair with the young intern. And then, sadly, Hustler magazine uh, exposed him as a philanderer, and Livingston had to confess to his own extramarital activity. So he stepped down and quickly left Congress and went to work as a lobbyist did very, very well. He's a very prominent, powerful lobbyist in town, and his firm is very well known. And he hired somebody who's very interesting herself. (laughs) Yeah, Lori Fitzpagato. I was so happy when I contacted the Livingston Group when they said, you should talk to Lori Fitzpagato. She worked for a company called Hill & Knowlton back during the first Gulf War, and she really uh, helped create the drumbeat for war. Uh, This is when Iraq had invaded Kuwait. Um, she worked for a front organization. Uh, I think it was called the Committee to Liberate uh, Kuwait. Um, it was a front group created by the Kuwaiti government, and Lori represented this this organization. And she actually arranged the congressional testimony of a, a, a of a young girl who claimed to have been at a hospital in Kuwait when Iraqis invaded, and that she saw firsthand. Iraqi soldiers taking babies out of incubators and throwing them on the floor of the hospital and letting them die. I mean, this whole terrible story. Now, mind you, I mean, the government of Iraq was a terrible government, and the invasion of Kuwait seems to me to have been unjustified. But, you know, the American people uh, don't always want to go to war. Um, and they, you know, the Bush administration was selling the war as a necessity, and Hill and Knowlton was working with the Kuwaiti government, um, which wanted to get back into power and, and, you know, get back control over its own oil fields, which it had lost control to, of course, when they were all evicted from the country. And so Fitzpagato and Hill and Knowlton drummed up this, you know, it was sort of like the equivalent of those World War One stories where the British press reported reported German soldiers um, throwing Belgian babies in the air and, you know, catching, hooking them on bayonets, you know, just the most outlandish sort of thing to get the public worked up. And so this Kuwaiti girl testifies. It turns out she was a member of the Kuwaiti royal family. She had not seen this firsthand. The story was fraudulent. There were no Kuwaiti babies who were plucked from incubators and left to die on the floor. So to me, though, I, you know, Livington Group was perfect. It was prominent. You had this other lobbyist there who had a checkered past, shall we say. And uh, its firm also had experience in the Caspian and in in, in, um, Central Asia. It worked for the government of Azerbaijan. So that was one firm I went after. Um, and then there was APCO, which which uh, proved to be uh, they they were more of the bargain. They, they they offered some pretty bargain rates for you, didn't they? Yeah, there were there, the there, there were just real quickly. I also first I, I approached Carmen, uh, uh, Carmen Associates, which had represented the government of Kazakhstan, which is a very corrupt government. Its president is uh, currently involved in a trial here in the United States. He's not named in the trial as a defendant, but he, he he's identified in the paperwork as having received something in the neighborhood of $80 million in bribes from an American businessman, you know, including his and her snowmobiles for him and his wife, furs for his wife. His daughter was sent to George Washington University, tens of millions of dollars transferred to a Swiss account. This is just a corrupt government, very authoritarian. And Carmen, uh, Carmen and Associates had um, represented Kazakhstan. And then APCO, which had worked for the Nigerian dictatorship during the 1980s, the dictatorship of Sani Abacha, who um, was uh, one of the leading thieves of of the modern era. I mean, he ended up, I think it was $4 billion in uh, Swiss bank accounts after he died, um, his untimely death uh, when he apparently had a heart attack while in the company of two prostitutes. Um, his regime collapsed, and they discovered $4 billion in, in his Swiss accounts. 
So we had APCO. That was a, a third firm. And then there was Cassidy and Associates, which is, you know, maybe the granddaddy of Washington lobbying firms. Been around for a long time, uh, 25 years. It's, it's expert at, at earmarking, in, inserting these, you know, getting pork barrel spending on behalf of its clients. And it also represented the government of Equatorial Guinea, which would have been on my list as countries possibly to, you know, in terms of my own scam I was setting up, except Cassidy already represented them. So I didn't want to go out and get a lobbyist for a firm that already had representation. But that's a dictatorship run by a guy who took power 25 years ago or so after killing his uncle and has had a series of those, you know, quote, elections where he always manages to get 99 point something percent of the vote. So, um, you know, all of these firms had a history of working for dubious clients and in some cases had done uh, a very had employed very sneaky tactics they all had experience in central asia so that's how i got to this list of four so the first thing you did and, and this is just I, I find how uh, bland the whole process is kind of fascinating you sent them all emails yeah the initial the initial contact was done by email we looked on the website of the firms, and we found an obvious person who was in charge of, you know, foreign business initiatives or something like this in several cases. And also, we call, we just simply called the front desk with a couple of the firms since we couldn't find web contact and said, you know, here's the situation. We're representing this firm with a stake in Turkmenistan. We'll be, we're in London. We're coming to Washington. We want to set up meetings. Who do we talk to? So we got web contact, sent, sent emails to all of these four firms got extremely quick replies. I mean, usually within an hour. Wow. Yes, we'd be very happy to talk to you. This sounds like a fascinating proposal, and we'd be happy to hear more about it. In several cases, um, we actually had phone conversations. In fact, in three of the four companies, we had phone conversations. At APCO, we just had email. APCO didn't want to know anything. They were just like, great, wonderful. We had a few email exchanges, and then it was, you know, and I had this in-person meeting, which we can talk about. The others wanted to talk to me by phone. Um, and uh, the, the conversation with Cassidy was actually quite amusing because um, I had one of their big clients was Equatorial Guinea, an oil-rich African dictatorship. And I had previously worked at the Los Angeles Times and had done a lot of reporting, oddly enough, about Equatorial Guinea, including the fact that its president had laundered hundreds of millions of dollars through an American bank, Riggs Bank, which subsequently went under when this was reported and it led to a Senate investigation. That's when Equatorial Guinea hired Cassidy in the aftermath of this scandal about it laundering all of this money at, at American Bank. And so when I was on the phone with them, they started talking about their great work for Equatorial Guinea. You know, they were telling me, Kenneth Case, that they had done all this great work for Equatorial Guinea. And, uh, in, you know, they re made reference to this bad precedent gotten as a result of a financial scandal, and they had helped shoot down those stories. This was highly amusing to me because, of course, Ken Silverstein, my real, you know, who I really am, I'd written those stories. So I thought, oh, great, you know, I'm glad you made a lot of money on, you know, as a result of these stories being published. I mean, they, they had, I, I they were making more than two point, I think it was $2.4 million a year they were being paid. And it started as a result of trying to shoot down my stories um, in the LA Times that had subsequently been confirmed by a Senate investigation uh, and uh, other reports, uh, and yet they were bragging about how, uh, you know, this was all a bunch of lies that we were able to shoot down, and this is why we were so perfect for you, because, you know, we've already represented one crummy oil-rich regime. We can take on another one, you know, Turkmenistan, perfect. Well, tell us about your first meeting, face-to-face -face meeting with APCO, because you were kind of nervous, understandably so. Well, I was very nervous initially because I thought, surely, I had had nothing, with APCO, I had, had nothing but a few email exchanges. Very, very enthusiastic on their part. But I just thought, this is crazy. I mean, I have a flimsy cover story. This, they've got to have done some due diligence. You know, my, my the Malden Group, my phony firm, was actually modeled on a report that a, a, a um, watchdog group called Global Witness had done about the Turkmen gas trade. And describe the Turkmen gas trade as mobbed up with billions of dollars being sent offshore into accounts controlled by Turkmen authorities by firms, intermediary firms based in the West that I modeled the Malden Group on. I thought, surely they're going to go, this is crazy. We can't do this. Or at least when I went in, I figured they'd want to spend the first five or ten minutes really probing me about, OK, you haven't told us much of anything. 
um, about your firm. In fact, I, I specifically said, I'm not going to tell you about me or my firm other than just the bare basics. Because life, you know, discretion is the very lifeblood of our operation over there. We don't want press. We don't want publicity. We don't want to be known. We work best in the shadows. So I won't tell you the name of the man I work for. I gave him this story about how I worked for a big investor in the Mullen Group, but I won't tell you his name. I won't tell you anything other than we have a big stake in Turkmenistan. I mean, if you want to know more, you know, I'm sure there are other firms that will be happy to help me. And, they, you know, when I said that in an email, APCO emailed back and said, we understand that we're accustomed to working this way. So I thought, though, still, you're going to want to check up a little bit about who I am. Um, but when I got there, it was immediately clear that they weren't going to check up on anything. I mean, we very quickly got down to doing business. They were very chummy. They'd had, you know, a platter of baked goods that they'd brought for me and, you know, had coffee on hand. And they just wanted to talk about this very exciting possibility that they could work for uh, me on behalf of the government of Turkmenistan. Now, two of the people you'd contacted, uh, the Carmen Group and the Livingston Group, they actually did ask a couple questions and, and made you feel more than a little bit uncomfortable, didn't they? They they did do a, a little bit of due diligence in our phone conversations and in subsequent emails. I decided to drop those two firms. You know, I, I, I don't want to paint them in glory here because they they didn't ask a lot. But they did at least say, look, we need to know the name of your Lebanese boss. And, you know, like I didn't have a Lebanese boss, so I couldn't give them a name anyway. But at least they like we need the name of the boss. You know, is are there any Turkmen investors in your firm? Because that would have that's a real red flag. I mean, if you have Turkmen officials or Turkmen business involved in the Malden Group, my phony firm, well, then you go, hmm, that might be corrupt. I mean, you know, how's this business operating? I mean, it, it was obvious the whole time that this was a very dubious firm. But they at least asked questions suggesting that they were going to look into the question of whether the firm was just, you know, a sham means of Turkmen authorities enriching themselves. So, you know, they, they asked some questions. I think that if I had been, you know, a real investor in this group and if we were really looking for a lobbyist, I think we probably could have smoothed things out. I probably could have given them enough minimal information that they might have been comfortable going forward. But that is admittedly speculative. You know, they ask enough questions that I thought, I'm going to drop them. You know, they've done enough that, um, you know, in fairness, I'll drop them. I still had Cassidy and APCO, which had done no due diligence, which had cravenly agreed to every demand I made about confidentiality. I mean, I said in no uncertain terms. In fact, I talked to a friend of mine who is an attorney who helped draft my communication to them when they first asked, both of them did say, can you tell us more about your company? And I crafted a legalistic reply, um, very firmly stating, no, no. I mean, discretion is the lifeblood of our operation. You know, I, you know, if we go on to the stage of a contract, I can tell you a little bit more, but, you know, we're not prepared to disclose much. And both of them said, okay, we'll sign confidentiality agreements. We can see how important that is to you. Tell me about your first face-to-face meeting with APCO. Well, I, I went down there with a colleague. I, I should talk about it for a second. Um, I had discussed my uh, approaching these firms and having the meetings with a, a few people in, in Washington who have experienced lobbying. And I was told, don't go by yourself. It's going to look very funny. You know, you're coming in. We, we, we sort of suggested that um, the Malden Group would be sending me on a private jet. And they said, you know, the idea that you flew in by private jet and nobody else from the company came with you, it's just going to look weird if you're by yourself. So I spoke to a Russian friend, a young woman who would have just been perfect for the job of my Malden Group associate, and she agreed to do it. But at the last minute, I it was either the night before or a couple of nights before the meetings, I went to her house to talk about it. And she said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm too nervous. If I blow it for you, I'm going to feel terrible. And she just said, I just can't. So I thought, OK, well, this is bad, but I'll do it by myself. Fortunately, her husband, Ricardo, um, who is uh, from Spain, said, hey, I'll do it. I'll be your sidekick. Like, <laughs> you will? Okay. And we talked about it. He said, hey, I, you know, I have an economics background. Um, I, he actually had been involved in some sort of international business back many years earlier. 
he was about 50 years old. You know, he he had he even went over to the closet and opened it up and said, look, here are business suits because we were laying around. You know, we were both dressed in jeans and I I'd always seen him dressed very, very casually. He said, no, no, I have the outfits, too. I, I, I can pull this off. And so I just OK, fine. So that's how Ricardo, the the head of the Malden Group's Madrid office, was born then. Um <clears throat> I emailed the firms and told them that my Russian colleague had had to stay back in Moscow, but I now would be bringing my associate from Madrid. So that made me feel better anyway, going in with a, a, a colleague. I just thought, you know, beating a hasty retreat if we're busted will be easier with two people as opposed to just me by myself. Um, so we went in. And it really did quickly become apparent that there was just no suspicion on their part. Um, Barry Schumacher, the head of the APCO team, uh, came to greet us and, you know, was very charming and elegant. He started talking in Spanish to Ricardo and he led us up into their big conference room and, you know, introduced us to the group of, of, of lobbyists. We'd be meeting with the team he had assembled to work on the Turkmen account. You know, there was a uh, a big platter of baked goods and you know there was coffee and soft drinks available it was a very comfortable uh, climate i was nervous at the start because i really thought uh, professionally it would have been humiliating to be arrested on the premises <laughs> uh, but it very quickly became apparent that we were good to go and they weren't going to press too hard could you talk about uh, they had a, a very special member, uh, Mr. Regal, is it? Uh, oh, they well, they had an, the, Don Regal. I met with a number of, of people from APCO. Um, and uh, I'm lo- we're looking here at, at their their they gave you a nice PowerPoint presentation, didn't they? They gave me a beautiful PowerPoint presentation, um, a CD, which I took home and also a, a printout of it. Um, so I'm going through that now. Their team that I met with was Beth Jones, who's the former ambassador to Kazakhstan, uh, who I was told by Barry Schumacher, another member of the team, um, who was a former Hill staffer. He said, you know, Beth can just call up her old colleagues at the State Department. She can get great information about the, the, the you know, the situation uh, in Turkmenistan and the, the nature of the relationship with the United States. She smiles and dials. She calls her old colleagues and she can really, you know, she can get priceless information. It was sort of a MasterCard routine, you know, priceless. Um, then there was Jennifer Jennifer Dyke, who was a former assistant to Dick Cheney and the director of communications for the CIA, and Robert Downen, who is a another former Hill staffer and it worked for the uh, a Republican administration. But they also said, in addition to these people, we have ties across the board. And they, they mentioned a number of other uh, big guns they could bring in. Don Regal, who is a former senator who best known in the Senate for getting involved in the Keating Five scandal along with John McCain. Don Bonker, a Democrat and former member of Congress. Stephen Sellars, another Democratic member of Congress. Richard Allen, a former national security advisor to Reagan. They had a long, long list of people who they said that they could call in. In fact, they they they, they provided this full list of, you know, APCO's team who there'd be the core team working on my behalf. But all told, they said on the APCO team, um, there were 10 former ambassadors, 17 former elected politicians, 54 former journalists, 90 former political advisors, on and on and on. It was, you know, they had they had ties to Democrats, to Republicans, to the executive branch, to Congress. I mean, across the board, they would be, you know, doing uh, doing this work on behalf of Turkmenistan where there were no doors that they couldn't knock on. Now, they actually had a... Uh, comparatively speaking, uh, they had a, a pretty good price. Could you talk about their pricing? Except for the website, that seemed kind of a little bit pricey for me. But I thought the monthly pricing was seemed pretty reasonable. It was. It was. I, it was about what I had expected. I mean, it was. It, it, it's only. It became reasonable when I after the next meeting at Cassidy, where I was asked to pay a lot more money. But no, APCO wanted forty thousand dollars a month to handle the Turkmen account. Um, that was a flat fee. Well, there were also going to be additional costs for their expenses if they had to travel to Turkmenistan or any, you know, if they brought over Turkmen officials, which is something they talked about doing. If they arranged a junket of Hill staffers or members of Congress to travel to Turkmenistan to see the exciting changes underway, there would be expenditures there as well. Um, And then they talked about the additional cost of setting up meetings around town, which is something they said they'd do, panel events or or discussions where they would utilize uh, their contacts at a local think tank, say, to set up a meeting that would look like it was just, you know, an, an event um, about 
you know, they, they said we're, we wouldn't call it Turkmenistan Day because that's too obvious. We'll do something like Caspian Basin Pipeline Day. So it won't be too obvious that we're just promoting the Turkmen regime, but we'll call it Caspian uh, Basin Pipeline Day and we'll have it at a local think tank or maybe on the Hill and then we'll bring in speakers, but we'll basically be controlling the agenda on behalf of you and the Turkmen government. So that was going to cost extra too. I, I think it was up to $25,000 per event. They told me I could save money because they'd bake the cookies for the events. You know, they had all these cute little things that they were going to do. <laughs> when the Democrats came in, they changed the, the ethics rules pretty severely. But there's a few little loopholes, and they're like the uh, university loophole. Yeah. Well, there are a whole bunch of loopholes, actually, that we could discuss <laughs> further if you like. But the one specific loophole here is that Congress passed a law that restricted uh, lobbyists from directly sponsoring uh, overseas junkets. So technically, APCO could not arrange a junket for members of Congress to go to Turkmenistan. Um, and, you know, they said it would be better if the Malden group didn't pay. That's probably violate the law, too. But either way, it just brings too much attention if you're paying the way. So they said, but there is a way we could do this, because if we can find a Turkmen think tank or a Turkmen university to serve as the sponsor, then we can bring over this delegation of American political officials, then we'll be within the law. You know, of course, this is ridiculous. I mean, there's no way that they were going to get a Turkmen university to pay for everybody's expenses. I mean, presumably, the money would have come from the lobbying firm and somehow been charged back to me in the end on my monthly bill as a, you know, some sort of fee that they would have added to the bill. Or, you know, they would have paid the Turkmen university directly. But, you know, the, the, the idea was that there would be a cutout so that it would look like strictly an academic venture, you know, a real, this is not a lobbying event. This is members educating themselves about the importance of Turkmenistan. So, yeah, the, you know, these this is the problem with a lot of these so-called reform bills is that they're filled with loopholes. And, and one of the other things they offered, I really liked this, was Crisis 360 protection. I, explain what that was. Well, they, t I mean, and I have to say, this this was not something they offered directly to me during the meeting, but they had handed me a bunch of promotional material for APCO, and they talked about Crisis 360 there. This is, you know, basically they, they run an operation, it's total crisis management, you know, 24-7. If something bad happens, you've got to get your message out quick in order to diffuse the situation from a PR standpoint. So let's say, um, you know, in the case of Turkmenistan, uh, I don't know, the government decides to arrest a couple of hundred people where unarmed demonstrators are fired upon or, you know, there's some sort of political crisis that emerges or the government is accused of some vast scandal and it's a breaking news story. You know, they have this this team operating every day of the week. 24 hours a day that kicks into operation and begins putting out messages to try to counteract the uh, any sort of negative PR fallout there might be for the client. Now, the other people you, you met with were Cassidy, and they talked about something that, that APCO also dealt with, but I love the way Cassidy put it. Uh, Cassidy was interested in influencing the influencers. Uh, tell us about Cassidy and, and that plan. Well, yeah, and this, you know, Cassidy... And APCO talked about there was a lot of sort of deception involved um, in terms of the way they would work and the way that they would hide, like with these events. You know, they would both the firms talked about hosting events where it wouldn't be entirely clear at all who was sponsoring them. But what they wanted to do was, you know, the, the influencers are key members of Congress or journalists um, or pundits or think tank officials. You know, they wanted to go out and figure out ways, to, as they said, to influence the influencers so that you could get, in the end, if you could convince a prominent member of a think tank who studies the area to be on your side, to be an advocate for your point of view, then the then he goes out or she goes out and maybe writes an op-ed or maybe writes a speech that's inserted in the congressional record so that it looks like it's a third party. This is a term that's very commonly used in, 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 in Washington lobbying, you know, white third parties or white hats, you know, where it's a seemingly independent advocate who's going out there. And so, you know, it doesn't look funny. I mean, if, if a somebody affiliated with a local think tank who happens to study Central Asia, decides to issue a paper on Turkmenistan. And I wouldn't, you know, it's not as if these are always bought and paid for by lobbying firms, although that does happen. 
But, you know, it's just much better than the lobbyists themselves going out. I mean, lobbyists have no credibility. I mean, if you represent the government of Turkmenistan, well, of course, you're going to put on a pretty face. But if it's a academic, that's gold. Then you're like, gee, we're not just saying it. Look, even, you know, Professor Joe Blow over here says that democracy is starting to flower in Turkmenistan. So, yeah, a big part of their effort was going to be going after people who could, you know, basically serve as cutouts as advocates for the country. Uh, now, Cassidy uh, bragged that they had never failed to win in earmark. That was their 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 sales line, wasn't it? Well, they and also that they talked about some of their past great successes in in the world of foreign lobbying. You know, they did talk about, uh, or they have this track record in terms of earmarking, where they claim they can get money no matter what the cause. But more specifically, in my case, they talked about Equatorial Guinea. One of their great triumphs, it was actually quite funny. They told me that, um, gee, you know, Equatorial Guinea always had a bad reputation. And President Obiang, the dictator there, though they didn't use that term, they never liked to call him a dictator. Um, but they talked about President Obiang. They said he used to be on Parade Magazine's list of the 10 worst, the world's worst dictators. You know, we got him off that list. So like, oh, gee, that's a great PR triumph. Well, I went home that day and did a Google search, and Obiang was down to number 11. So, you know, <laughs> Equatorial Guinea paying them $2.4 million a year and getting, you know, down from number 10 to number 11, it somehow didn't have quite the uh, uh, the aura of uh, of success that they had portrayed when we were at the meeting. Um, one of the things that both these people thought was a good way to, to get promote the country was energy security. Yeah. Uh, APCO in particular, they kept using this term hooks. We need hooks to sell the regime. And both of them acknowledged, and it would have been ridiculous to pretend otherwise, that the human rights situation wasn't exactly perfect. You know, there were some problems, admittedly. I mean, you know, you have cons political oppos opposition is constitutionally forbidden. There is no civic society. You've got political opponents in jail. Um, you know, there's just I've be, I've actually been to Turkmenistan after writing the book, oddly enough. And um, I've been to a lot of crummy places. But in terms of political repression, this is I, I've never seen a place where there's just there is no civic opposition. There is no political life in Turkmenistan. Nobody's going to buy that. So they weren't going to go out and try to pretend that it was a perfect democracy. They wanted better hooks. So one of them was energy security important exporter of, 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 of energy to the United States. You know, we this could become an important ally of the United States. And we can sell it on those terms. You know, hey, we want to diversify away from the Middle East. That's unstable. Well, Turkmenistan is willing to sell us their energy. They could become an important friend of the United States. And then, you know, they, they'd say, well, in the human rights situation, um, is may not be perfect, but they're taking steps in the right direction. So they had a few little hooks about that, too, like, the Internet cafes that the new president, the dentist, had decided to open up after he took power. Turkmenistan, as a private citizen, you had no right to be online. You could there were there was people didn't have computers at their homes. <clears throat> there was virtually no Internet access. There were no Internet cafes. So they opened up a couple in the capital. Um, the, the little problems here were and I saw this firsthand when I was over there. It's about six or seven or eight dollars an hour, which is a fortune in Turkmenistan. I mean, that's, you know, like a day's or a couple of days' pay. And beyond that, you go to these little cafes, and there are these vast portraits of the president um, right there in the reception area, and you have to turn in your personal identification card um, before surfing the web. So, you know, they know, as a private citizen, what websites you're going to. I mean, if you go to some sort of BB, the BBC or some sort of critical website that covers Central Asia. And there are these websites, I mean, that are easily found. If you're looking for critical information, they know instantly that you've been going to these sites. And, it, you know, it's a country where anything that smacks of open-mindedness or, uh, you know, opposition is very quickly punished. So, you know, you don't have any freedom. But the, the lobbyists were saying, we can use this as a hook. The Internet cafes, that's great, you know. So they were going to sell energy security. That would be a stronger and more credible sales point. But then they they tried to talk about the little baby steps the country was taking in terms of democracy. These guys, uh, Cassidy also asked you some questions, but they were all pretty softball. They, they, weren't, they weren't too uh, interested, but they certainly had a, a quite clear financial 
request, didn't they? Oh yeah, they were very, very. They had they had done a lot of thinking about what would be needed in terms of uh, this this program, in terms of what they would need to be paid. Um, you know, it was quite funny throughout the presentation at Cassidy. They kept dropping hints about um, how this country really could use some help. You know, and boy, you know, you need some experts talking to journalists because if you don't know how to talk to journalists, you'll just get into trouble. So they kept there were these subtle hints. I was waiting the whole time. I knew they were going to hit me hard for money because they kept saying how how much Turkmenistan needed help. And, they, you know, one of the leaders of the Cassie team actually said, you know, there are no quick, easy solutions for Turkmenistan. This, you know, we need a multi-year approach here because one year just isn't going to cut it. Um, and they said, and by the way, you know, it's going to even cost you more if some human rights group gets involved and starts criticizing the country, because then we'll have to respond, gee, that would be terrible, but we'd have to do even more work. But their plan was $1.2 to $1.5 million in fees per year over three years. So up to $4.5 million in fees, but then you were going to have significant expenses and all sorts of other options that might cost more money. But as a baseline, the bottom line was about $4.5 million over three years. This is a lot of money. Um, now, once you got all this, you recorded all this. You, you actually took a recorder and, and recorded all this. Day. And did you have some qualms about doing that, journalistic qualms, or, or, or just worried that they might say, what's that in your pocket? Um, well, I was worried about being caught, and that didn't make me uncomfortable to have the recorder there. Otherwise, no, I didn't. I mean, we we talked about the story. You know, there are certain media outlets that do not do undercover reporting. The Washington Post just never does it. We do it. At Harper's, we do it. NPR will do it under some circumstances, I know, from talking to reporters there. There are outlets that do it and some that don't. We discussed the propriety of using undercover reporting in this case. And we decided that it was in the public interest, the, the power and influence of lobbyists, particularly given Congress's failure to do anything serious in the aftermath of the Abramoff scandals, made it a legitimate public interest story uh, or a topic of public interest. Two, we were going to disclose the full deception that we pulled in the story and to the public. We were not going to hide the fact or 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 be weasley about descri des describing what we did. I've said I lied to the lobbyist. I mean, I'm not going to beat around the bush. We felt that, you know, as an undercover, it's an undercover story. You you have to lie to pull off an undercover story. I mean, sometimes reporters try to use um, uh, words that aren't quite as harsh, but we did. We, we, we deceived them. Um, and we also felt, though, that we could not possibly get a story, a similar story, in any other way. There was no way to go to these firms and talk to them and say, gee, tell us how you plant opinion pieces in newspapers on behalf of your clients. You know, what, were they going to tell us that? No. But APCO actually gave me a PowerPoint presentation where they say, we will write opinion pieces. We will go out and recruit a third party to sign it, and then we will plant it in the newspaper. They told me, in fact, that they had a person on staff whose full-time job is writing bogus op-eds, finding you know someone to sign it, and then go planting them in the newspapers. You, I didn't know that. They, I mean, this is not something they're going to disclose to journalists. And so... We felt that it was a legitimate use of the undercover tactic. And in terms of recording it, you know, basically my view was if we're going to do it, if we've decided to do it, then let's do it right. I knew there was no way I could sit in a meeting and get an accurate accounting afterwards, you know, and just start, you know, OK, what did they say? How? I mean, I wanted to have a faithful, accurate portrayal of what took place. And there was no other way to do it without recording. I also will tell you that we did check the relevant laws. Washington, D.C., it's a one-party consent state, so it was not illegal for us to do it, and we decided that we would get not only a uh, uh, that it was important to get the most accurate story, particularly on a sensitive topic where we knew they were going to be mad. We wanted to be able to back up our our story. Eventually, alas, you had to send them your regrets that you weren't going to be able to hire them. How did that feel? Was that kind of fun? Um, actually, you know. It's the one point where I felt a little bad. I don't know. There was, I mean, even though I, I, I did just, I could not believe they were willing to work for this reprehensible government. And it just the whole thing struck me as unbelievably sleazy. They were both so persistent that I actually had sort of twinges of guilt about, you know, having to turn them down. Basically, as soon as, you know, the firms after the story broke, which was when our story hit the newsstands, um, is when they found out that they'd been scammed. Um, they claimed, oh, we weren't going to go in and 
really do this. We were just having initial meetings. Well, as soon as I finished my in-person meetings with Cassidy and APCO, I started getting, you know, bombarded maybe a little too strong, but I certainly got steady stream of communications from both firms by email saying, when are you going to make your decision? We're really interested. We really are interested in doing this job. Uh, you know, when are we going to hear from you? APCO, actually, Barry Schumacher, the head of the team, emailed and said, I'm coming to London next week. I want to meet you and your team over there. And really, you know, I, we're really interested in, in winning this account. This was before I told them they weren't going to get it. And, you know, of course, I'm sitting in Washington, so I had to email back and say, well, you know, tragically, I'll be traveling in the Middle East, so I won't be available next week. But I did. I ultimately told him that uh, Schumacher, that they weren't getting the account. And he expressed great regret and sadness and, you know, said, gee, we always like to get feedback when we don't get it. You know, what did we do wrong, basically? Um, and then Cassidy, I never actually said, you're not getting the account. I kept stalling them because um, they just struck me as they were so sure they were going to get the account. They were so arrogant. I thought, you know, it's probably best to push them off and let them find out um, when the story hits. So I told them we're, we've delayed a decision. We're not quite sure. And I got emails back saying, oh, we understand it's a big decision. You know, I, I told them I was coming to Washington in mid-June. This would have been in 2007 and that I would contact them uh, then in order to set up a follow-up meeting. And of course, I picked mid-June because that's when our story hit the newsstands. So I never actually had to formally tell them no. So I just delayed with them. Uh, but uh, no, APCO took it very badly when I told them they weren't getting the account. Now, they both took it much worse when they read your story. Tell us about the blowback from this. Well, there was, you know, they were obviously very upset about the piece, and they tried to turn it into a story about journalism ethics as, a, as opposed to lobbying ethics, you know, the ethics of me going undercover and tricking them as opposed to them so being so desperately eager to work for a Stalinist regime. And they got a little bit of help from uh, in in that with the mainstream with some in the mainstream media. Howard Kurtz, the Washington Post media critic, said that undercover reporting was always wrong. No circumstances in which it w could possibly be proper, and you know that it was just in, not a legitimate use of undercover tactics. It created some some definite debate in the journalism community. I you know I think there was more. There was more support than criticism, but there was some criticism. I have to say, amongst the public, this I thought, thought quite funny. The, the criticism that I got primarily emanated from within the Beltway, whether it was the lobbying community or the trade associations or the journalists who were most critical came from within the Beltway. And I think that, you know, journalists in the Beltway are a little bit too close to the people they cover. And I think they're a little bit too uh, jaded about Washington. They don't see lobbyists as a problem. I, they see lobbyists frequently as good sources for their stories. And so I did get, to the extent that I got criticism from the media, it was primarily the Beltway media. But the public response was absolutely astonishing. I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails, overwhelmingly supportive. And that is not always the case. Typically, when you write something, uh, when you write anything, you know, there's a minority, at least a good, solid 25, 30 percent that is angry about what you've done. Uh, angry about what you've written. And, you know, you, you, you typically I get a lot of heat as well. In this case, it was 95% overwhelmingly favorable. People saying, thank you. You know, this is rotten. And the further away you got from Washington and the East Coast, the happier people were with what I'd done. Tell us uh, what, what was the result for you in terms of, as a journalist, just in working with this kind of, uh, in, in a world where journalism is supposed to be fair and balanced? Well, again, I, you know, I, I got some heat for the story. It was primarily not about the fair and balanced aspect of it, but it was more about the undercover nature. I, you know, I have worked in the mainstream press at the Los Angeles Times and some years earlier at the Associated Press. I personally am more comfortable in the magazine world. I feel like, you know, too often... In the mainstream, we use this idea of balance to shirk our own responsibilities as reporters. And it, it's, it's very easy to simply say, we're not ever going to take sides. We're always going to give equal weight to the opposing views, whether there's one point of view that's clearly lacking in terms of being truthful and accurate um, or not. We just we're, we're afraid I think often the media is, is generally afraid to look like it might be biased because then somebody's going to be mad at you, you know, and you're going to get complaints. But, hey, there are circumstances, there are situations where, you know, 
there are two sides to stories, and they're not both telling the truth. And, you know, to say that, well, um, we'll, we'll give everybody an equal say, and that's being balanced and fair, well, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's a way for us, a very cheap, easy way for the media to avoid its own responsibilities. It's, you know, you tell reporters, go out and report, but don't make any judgments. Well, you know, I don't think you're doing your readers a service if you are saying to your reporters, you're not allowed to have an opinion. Having an opinion does not mean that you're necessarily going to be unfair. I mean, I anybody who checks my work over time will see that I go after both parties. And I'll tell you, if I get a story about a politician who I'm fond of, or who shares my political perspective, and it's a good story, I do it. And I mean, I, I will stand by my record in that regard. We're political reporters. We have opinions. That doesn't mean we can't go out and do good, solid, fair reporting. Just because there are two points of view doesn't mean that there's always going to be one side that's, um, you know, th that both sides have equal merit. I mean, you know, our job is to ferret out um, if one side is, 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 is lying or if they're being less than forthcoming or if their argument simply doesn't carry weight, which sometimes may be the case, well, we should report that instead of falling behind the excuse, well, we have to be balanced. Um, you know, we can't take sides. Sometimes there are there is right and wrong in the world. I've been speaking with Ken Silverstein. His new book is Turkmenistan, How Washington Lobbyists Fought to Flack for a Stalinist Dictatorship. Thank you for joining me, Ken. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.